Welcome. You are listening to the Better Together podcast with Callie and Rosario Picardo. We take on topics involving marriage, ministry, parenting, communication, relationships, and other subjects that our listeners want to hear more about. Welcome to another edition of the Better Together podcast. I am one of your hosts, Rosario Picardo, and I'm here along with Callie Picardo. And today we have Dr. Joni Sankin with us. Joni is the Associate Professor of Homiletics at United Theological Seminary, and she's also an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church. And Joni has been doing some deep work in this area of trauma, something that we deal with so much, but sometimes we don't even know it. We don't even realize what is, what's going on, how to respond. We just know we want to hide under a blanket and close the door and just be quiet sometimes. And, um, but we, life goes on. And so Joni has an incredible new book called All Our Griefs to Bear, Responding with Resilience After Collective Trauma. And so Joni, we're so excited to have you on the Better Together podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, tell us a little about this book. Where did this book come from? Well, I can talk a little bit about how I got kind of interested in this conversation about trauma. I mean, I will say there are some authors who feel like trauma is the buzzword for our age, even before the last couple of years in which all of us uh, have absorbed trauma uh, in our world, regardless of of how we weathered the pandemic. I think all of us have absorbed trauma to some extent. Um, All of us, kids, adults, (laughs) every single person. Um, But even prior to this, I, uh, had started getting interested in trauma because our students at the seminary, I felt like were struggling to process events that occurred on a national scale or that occurred um, in their local communities. We teach a lot of intensive classes. And so these students are doing prep work. Callie, you took an intensive preaching class. So for a while, it seemed like every time we'd have an intensive, that there'd be something horrible that would happen like right before, like the Orlando nightclub shooting happened on like a Saturday night to Sunday. And then students came on Monday to Dayton and they were going to like preach these sermons and they were just reeling. Uh, They felt like whatever they had prepared didn't address kind of what was most pressing. And it's really hard to know how to talk about that because a lot of them were afraid that they would somehow make the trauma responses worse by how they talked about it or that they might inflame their congregations uh, by talking about gun violence that some people might be worried about, like that you're going to take away my gun. Like, they would just get so inflamed. And so they couldn't find a way to talk about it, but felt a pressing need to talk about it. And so I thought, okay, this is something I need to explore. So I'd started exploring this. I'd written a little article. And then our family experienced uh, traumatic ex- uh, death of my sister-in-law. She died very suddenly from a brain aneurysm. She was in her 30s, four very young kids. Um, the way she died, the suddenness of it, I began to see in our family the trauma responses that I had read about. And also our own experience um, of kind of weathering that storm and our interactions with others and the helpful things that some folks can do and that some of the harmful things uh, that unfold as well. I mean, one of the things, and this has been such a lesson for me and walking with other trauma survivors, 
um, a lot of people pulled away from us after we'd experienced this trauma. And I think it was just instinct. When you see something really bad, like you're, you're revulsed by it. Like you don't want to get near to it. It's really hard to lean in when a friend has something terrible happen. And I think for this in particular, because it was like the death of a mother, I think a lot of mothers experienced kind of just almost a bodily um, struggle with that. Like, oh, that'd be the worst thing. Like, I can't even think about it. And to be with me made them think about it because like I wanted to talk at least a little bit about it. So that was painful to have that experience of people pulling away, even though I know they couldn't help it. And other people were able to lean in in a way that was really beneficial. And I think especially watching the community that um, Steve's sister Twyla was a part of, that community was Amish one generation before. And there's just a thickness of Christian community that like, I don't have any other <laughs> thing to describe it to. Like, I can't think of any normal analog for it, but it's just, it's so thick. It's so sustaining. I mean, it allowed my in-laws to question their faith in a really deep way while being upheld by the strong faith of others in their lives and just deeply supported. And it allowed them to move through this time with a, a stronger faith. Like they have emerged um, transformed in a way that I did not think was possible. So like a, a year or so after Twyla had died, my father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. It's um, multiple myeloma. So it's like a chronic cancer. And I thought, oh no, like, it's just going to like unravel their faith because it was really hard. My husband's a pastor for us to like see their faith being so rocked by this. Cause I mean, these are the people that instilled faith in my husband and for them to just be so unraveled by Twyla's death. He was like, what was their faith built on? Like, was it just built on like, like positive feelings, but, but to see that there is such a solid foundation now and that their faith was not rocked by this cancer diagnosis. And instead I feel like they reach out to others. Like they've been able to reach out to other people who have lost their children um, they've almost even had a ministry. Like for a while, there were several families who had lost children by suicide and they reached out. They're like, we know what it is like to lose a child. And it was like very simple and very authentic, like coming by with a pie and being like, can we just sit and like eat, eat this together? Um, so to see that happen and to know that that community was a big part of it. And so having a supportive community makes a massive difference in how people weather traumatic experience. So that's how I got into the idea of trauma. I wrote a, a book, Words That Heal, and it came out at a weird time. Like it came out in April of 2019. And then of course we had tornadoes in Dayton. We had a Klan rally. We had a mass shooting. I felt like it was like my Esther moment <laughs> that I'd written this book and had the chance to work with a number of folks on it. And then of course we all know what happened then in the spring of 2020, um, as we moved into that season, I felt like I just wasn't done with this topic. And so, and conversation with some publishers uh, moved into the area of collective trauma to say, okay, is there, is there something different when an entire group of people weather something like, what are the social implications? Um, so that was really fascinating. And that's, that's really what all our griefs is about. And this is a book that is targeted toward average um, readers, just average churchgoers and folks. It's not specifically for clergy. Uh, it's not focused on preaching. Like it's not um, specific to that, although I do hope it's useful for pastors. That's such a gift to give people. And I'm 
you know, we think of, gosh, the loss of a child, the loss of a loved one, that is extreme trauma, or you, you hear a lot of it from folks coming back from war and PTSD yes. and that type yes. of thing. But we've all been in this global pandemic, plus all of the racial issues that had were under the surface, but got brought to light even more so over the past couple of years. And then just everything going on financially. I mean, there's been a lot. And I think some of us may be dealing with trauma and not able to even recognize it. I mean, how do you even start to recognize if you yourself are have experienced trauma? And is it safe to say that we all have at this point through the past couple of years? Yeah. I mean, I think to varying degrees. Yes. I mean, I will say if you are not white and you're living in our country that you are experiencing more trauma and for longer and uh, the trauma can be generationally passed on. So you may be experiencing impact of trauma that that wasn't even yours. Like that was the trauma that your mother experienced when you were in the womb or that it trauma can actually, it changes your DNA. Like it's, it's that powerful. Like this, the stress hormones that go through your body, um, they're, they're powerful and they're, they're life-changing for more than one generation. And so to be aware that like, it doesn't fall evenly and that's, it's really awful. And we saw that in the pandemic as well. I mean, people, um, disproportionately people who were not white and people who were poor, um, bore the brunt of that in a way, um, that, that was very unjust, but yes, um, I would say that all of us have experienced it to one degree or another. i usually define trauma by saying that it feels like too much, too fast, too soon, or that something has happened to you where your capacity to process it is just overwhelmed by the magnitude of what has happened. Um, so it's that kind of extreme overwhelm. Physical responses like shaking, crying, having a really short fuse, um, black and white thinking. We can see some of this stuff if we look as far back as September 11. So remember after September 11, there was like this huge swell, like everyone in the world, like felt really bad and was sending love our way. But pretty soon I felt like there was a desire for, for revenge, for kind of lashing out as a collective nation. And that there was this black and white thinking where it was like, this is an access of evil. Like these are evil doers, like, and these are, are not evil doers. Like this kind of, it's a trauma response, um, Unfortunately, we didn't really attend to that trauma. I think as a nation, it would have been amazing. Like I look back and I think, wow, what if we had said, we're going to take like three days of mourning um, after this event had happened? Like, what if we just said, like, we're going to stop and and grieve instead of there being the kind of the frantic energy that there was um, not being able to sleep is a, is a sign of, of trauma stress. And so that as a a brain that has not had a chance to sleep is not a healthy brain. It's not a brain that's making good decisions. Um, the inability to see multiple perspectives. And I think we saw a lot of that during the pandemic. Like people got very entrenched in their camp and our, our country already was polarized, but people just became um, almost just frantic with their own perspective and terrified of people with another point of view. Um yeah, I know that when I had interacted with people that my own sense of emotions, I think of, of earlier times in the pandemic when even at the seminary where we were trying to decide how to safely gather and realizing that like, okay, like I need to just like dial down my own internal anxiety a notch, like, but it's hard to do that when you're at this level of, of traumatic stress all the time. I'm so glad you named that, Jenny, because I feel like 
you know, looking from the outside, like, why are people fighting over masks? Like how has wearing a mask or not wearing a mask become this huge issue? And I think naming that, gosh, it's a response to trauma, that black and white thinking and becoming entrenched in your viewpoint. That's helpful for me to hear. It gives me a, a little more compassion for why the harsh and strong responses. Yeah. I mean, digestion, like your digestive system. I mean, because trauma is part of that fight, flight, freeze response, the energy is going to your limbs. So you can fight or run. It's not going to your digestive system. It's not going to your central nervous system. Um, I think your breathing becomes more shallow. Like you're not kind of taking deep breaths. Like you're kind of panting. Like, I mean, there's just this kind of sense of being amped up um, and that then your responses are disproportionate to what has occurred. So like flying off the handle about like a mask. I mean, I think we all saw those horrible images of like a greeter at a store being like beaten up because they asked someone to wear a mask, which is just obviously is a disproportional response to what was asked. It, it seems like people, you know, we're saying it manifests differently. You know, we're in an age of rage now where people are just so angry um, as they're processing trauma and um, I think, you know, we've seen a rise in drug use, uh, alcohol use, abuse, yeah. um, uh, maybe suicide uh, yeah. in, in some of those things. And I can't help but wonder the intense trauma that the world has been through in our country has really brought some of those things to light. What, any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I agree. It's self-soothing. It's like a, an easy way to kind of numb that pain without having to process it or deal with it. And also to not have been able to name it and to not feel like there's support. I mean, there is, I think there's a mental health crisis that's unfolding right now. And it's, I would say that the pandemic is definitely a part of that. I don't think we can neatly separate it out and say, oh, that would have happened anyway. But I especially think of underserved populations who um, may not have access to mental health care and for kids and teenagers who don't know any different. Like they don't know like, oh, like not everyone feels this way. I mean, I've, I've actually literally heard people say that. I thought everyone felt like this. Like they thought that that was just how humans were. And then like someone recognized it and got them help. And they were like, oh my goodness, like life can be different. Um, so I think to just be aware of those folks in our lives um, to be kind of on the lookout for some of those things. Joni, how uh, can people name it? I mean, how, how do you help people start to name? Because I think even just the ability to give something a name uh, brings it into the light so you can start giving it attention. I mean, how, how, how do you help even getting to that point of just, okay, I've been through trauma. I mean, some people are resistant to it. I, I remember when I, I did a, a seminar right after the shooting here in, in Dayton, and like it was very visible. Like, there were a lot of people locally here who were um, very upset about it. And there was one guy in the class who was from Philadelphia, inner city church. And he's like, you guys, like we have shootings, like <laughs> several shootings a week in my community. He's like, I'm not trying to like minimize your pain, but... And I thought, okay, like, I mean, it's what you get used to in some regards, it's like the lobster in the water. So you can't compare like your response to someone else's. You shouldn't like beat up yourself. If you're having a response, like validate it in yourself. I mean, validation is massive. And like, you can validate yourself. You can say, you know what? 
the response that I'm having to this event is a valid response. Like I need to honor that I've been going through some stuff and that that's why like I was short tempered with my kids or whatever it was and say, okay, I need to, it's a wake up call. I need to take care of this. Whether or not the word trauma is helpful to you or not, to recognize those signs of overwhelm and overstress that your body is sending to you because your body is trying to take care of you. But we like override it all the time. I mean, we're just so used to overriding our bodies. I mean, think about it. I mean, I do it all the time, middle afternoon. I'm tired. I'll I'll just have another cup of coffee. So I keep going. Like, I'm not going to take a nap, even though like my body is like, oh, you're tired. Like, I mean, we're just so used to that. And I think when we override it, so validate, validate other people in your life, validate yourself. Um, make sure that you're just checking in with yourself. And, and there's a lot of things that you can do that are pretty simple to soothe your um, vagus nerve and your central nervous system, which can help to calm those responses and, and bring you back to the present and bring you back to your, to yourself so that you can have kind of a more expansive posture. I do some of this stuff with my students in classes, like almost anything you would do to soothe a baby is soothing to your central nervous system. So like um, patting your back, rubbing that, that solar plexus area, like rocking, like, I mean, people rock, it, rocking is very comforting. So like get in a rocking chair, even just like rock your body, humming. Like, I mean, that's something even in, in worship, like if you have people hum along, like while you're praying or something, like it's calming to the central nervous system. Like it keeps them together. Things that regulate breath. So like singing along to your favorite song that regulates your nervous system. It slows it down. Um, things that are rhythmic. I know I would love to experiment with this, but I worship with Presbyterians and this is not their thing. <laughs> like a drum circle. I've experienced this before in trauma um, workshops. It's so powerful to like, everyone's just beating that drum and like your heart rate goes down. Like you feel connected to everyone and like, you're not having to talk, like you're not having to share, like it's not stressful at all. Um, so finding ways to involve that kind of rhythm. I mean, I think with kids, like that can be just a really easy way to help them calm down and uh, get, get a sense of um, regulation of themselves. So, I mean, there's, there's things that you can do pretty simple things to calm your body. How can you help others name it? Because I know thinking kids, you know, you've got young kids, we do as well. And with our girls, often I've noticed they're acting. I'm like, you're really tired. Yeah. Or you're really hungry. Like sometimes just meeting those physical needs helps, but sometimes they just need a hug. And so like they're reacting out or like having a meltdown. I'm like, do you need a hug? Like, yes, I just need it. Like you can just tell they just like melt in your arms. And I've noticed sometimes that with that too, where I've just had a rough day and I'm just like, Roz, I need a hug. Like, and he's like, oh, here's a little hug. I'm like, no, 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 no you don't get it. I need like a hug. Like just give me a minute. Like I, I, it's gotta be a long hug. I just gotta be able to get to the point where my body can just relax. But sometimes how how can you help others name it too, or when, or see it in others? I mean, I think what you're talking about are really good examples. I mean, those are loved ones who, you know, well, and you can recognize their signs and symptoms. I mean, one of the things I felt like was hardest about some of those early months of the pandemic is that all of us were so amped up. It was really hard to be able to be aware of other people. So I think it sounds super cliche, but oxygen mask on yourself first, like to be aware of your own self, because it's really hard to be aware of other people when your own nervous system is so ramped up. I mean, you you really are just, you're looking for um, threat everywhere. And so it's like really hard to relax and to be with people. It's really hard to play. It's really hard to like, to love. 
like those are not um, like emotions and ways of being that are conducive if you feel like you're under threat. I mean, think about animals. Like if you are a gazelle that has just been chased by a lion, you're not like, oh, like now I'm going to like relax and like nurse my little colt or whatever. Like that's not going to be what happens. Like you're running. You may have like just left your colt in the dust. I mean, I remember a few years ago, we were walking our, our dog in the neighborhood and we accidentally disturbed a rabbit nest. And the mother rabbit bolted and these baby rabbits were like, wow, like, and I was like, she just left like 20 babies is what it looked like. I mean, obviously we're going to let our dog get them, but like, take care of yourself and then you can take care of the, of the others. Like that's, you have to kind of manage your own threat response first. So I would say that sense of checking in with yourself and if you are grounded and you do see it in others, like try to offer like what they might instinctually need. I mean, if your friend is struggling, say, Hey, can I like take your kids for the afternoon or, Hey, can I like drop by a pizza or, or like just texting even like there was some kind of a study I read recently, that even just like a text from a friend means so much. And I mean, that really does not take very much. I mean, you're not even talking like, it's just like, Hey, hope you're okay. Or even just like a heart emoji. Like, I mean, it's, it's showing that you're present, that you see them, that like they're a human being to you that sense of, of dehumanization. I mean, I think that was some of the worst of what unfolded during the pandemic. I think we forgot that people who didn't share the same point of view with us were human beings also. Like these are also humans. And it's so easy to slip into that kind of dehumanizing when you're really othering another person with that extreme black and white thinking. And, and again, it's a trauma response. Like your, your better self would not do that, but we are just are not in control of that of that better self. So it's, uh, I don't know if that helped, but I mean, a lot of what I tell pastors is to validate these responses from the pulpit. Like if you are in a leadership position, validate that kind of response. Like if you're a supervisor, like honor that your workers are humans and that we've been through a really hard season and like, and validate that. Um, not all of us are in settings where we get that luxury. And I think that also is hard, hard to deal with to find, try to find ways to equalize, um, our society. I, it's hard to, to work in trauma and to study this stuff and not to try to want to make the world a better place where there's less trauma. I mean, I feel like that is the natural direction that it tends to go. Like you think, oh, wow, a lot of things just happen and we can't control it, right? Like, like a tornado just happens. Like we can't control that. COVID happened. We can't control that. But there's a lot of trauma that we can control um, that someone could have intervened somewhere along the way. And it could have prevented that trauma from happening. And there are things about the way that our society functions that make um, trauma worse for some people. And so I think once we know that, like then to try to work at making that better, I think is part of um, it's part of how God empowers us, I think, to respond like that this knowledge and this information is not just like for neutral and for yourself, like it's for also helping others. It's that that sense of wanting to share and expand and and bring glory to God's intention for what, what our world is. Jenny, some of it feels so big and trauma feels so, I mean, even the word it's like, it's, yeah. it's like this huge, heavy weight, but can something, can our small actions actually do anything about it? Yes. Yes. That is the most hopeful part of it. I, I mean, I was telling you before we started recording, like I feel so much, I mean, I feel so hopeful working with trauma. Um, 
telling people, like sharing stories of hope, like just sharing a hopeful story does so much to lift and build kind of that resilience muscle for people. And a lot of times we talk about instead of like recovering or restoration after trauma, we talk about resilience. So like, how do we nurture um, a person or a community's ability to withstand the things that are happening in our world? And stories of hope, looking for God's action in our world, uh, nurture resilience over time. And if you can't do it, being in a community where other people are doing that with you, uh, sometimes in our classes, I've had students have a hope forum online where they're just posting, like, here's a song that brought me hope. Here's a story that brought me hope. Like, here's a prayer that is expressing hope. And like by receiving that, it makes a difference. Um, there's a practice called compassionate witness. Uh, the person who coined that term is Kata Weingartner. And if you look online, like if you Google that, she's got a website with tons, like it was a witnessing project that she did. And she's got a bunch of articles and information on there. But essentially it is doing an action that is directed toward the locus of that pain. It's honoring the fact that it is totally normal when another person, another part of creation is hurting for me to also hurt, like that's how we were created. Like we weren't created to be apart. And instead we spend a lot of energy stifling that response and just getting on with it. And that takes more energy than just honoring it. And it can be as simple as just pausing and saying, all right, I'm going to say a prayer toward this situation. or I'm just going to pause and just honor that I have this feeling and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to at least pause and honor it. I'm going to light a candle. I'm going to write a check to like make a donation around this. I'm going to send a text, like do it with that intention and say, this is because I recognize this is weighing on my soul. I mean, sometimes for me, like sending an email, like that kind of stuff, it allows me to honor that pain within myself. That's a normal response. I mean, that is probably the biggest way that my life has been changed. I think before having done this research, I was like, oh, just get on with it. Like, you, I mean, we see ambient violence in our world all the time. Like you're in the grocery and someone slaps their kid and you think, oh, like that's bad, but it's not really my role to intervene. They were probably having a bad day, but like to just pause and say, okay, like I'm going to say a prayer for parents who are at their last wit at this time of day, or I'm going to write a check for like a, a program that um, works with domestic violence or whatever it is like to honor that instead of just sort of getting on with it. Jenny, this has been so good. And friends, if you've been enjoying what Dr. Jenny Sankin has been sharing two things, one, we mentioned a lot of this is coming from her book and her work, all our griefs to bear responding with resilience after collective trauma, which uh, Jenny that's available for pre-order right now, isn't it? Yes. And it'll be out in November. And then we also are going to do some follow-up podcasts with Jenny. We're doing a little bit of a series here, and she's going to be going into some of the other ways that you can build that resiliency, that you can respond to trauma. We're going to be looking at things like lament, storytelling, blessing. So if you're thinking, gosh, okay, I think I've named some trauma or (laughs) in my own life, or I'm seeing it in others, where, how can I respond with those small acts to disrupt that cycle of trauma? And so I hope you'll join us back next week as we dive in further. Joni, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, friends, in the meantime, remember we are better together. If this has been a blessing to you, we encourage you to share it with someone else that might need that message, that compassionate message of hope in a world with lots of trauma. We are better together. God bless.